Okay. I love that beginning little segment. It's based on real cheers from a real crowd, real protests. So welcome tonight to the Environmental Justice Report with me, your host, Janine Moloff. And tonight what we're doing, we're repeating a show that I did on the on Progressive News Network's Justice Report that airs on Sunday. Keep in mind, all our shows are archived, so you can check them out anytime. But this show was, so, I figured, was so important that it really needed to be repeated, and it deals with the filibuster. Now, we've talked about the filibuster once before on the show and why it must end, and it must end. Now, let's talk about it. This title, this is End the Filibuster or End Democracy Itself. So I'm going to just come out and say it. The filibuster is unconstitutional. It just is. Always was, and it always will be. Now, for those of you that are familiar with the age-old Jimmy Stewart classic, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, I'm not talking about that filibuster where a member of the Senate stands up and they can keep the debate going forever as long as they stay where they're at and they never stop talking. They can read the dictionary, whatever. I'm not talking about the talking filibuster. No. What I'm talking about is the silent filibuster or the procedural filibuster, which essentially grants the GOP, their slim minority, an unconstitutional veto, which basically denies all of us equal representation in Congress. Now, what does this have to do with environmental justice and and environmental racism? Well, everything. The truth is we can't have any environmental justice or any kind of justice. We can't have any legal reforms regarding environmental racism and other environmental injustices as long as the silent filibuster exists. Because right now, even though the members in the Senate are very close, the Democrats have a slim majority, barely there. And just the other day, we saw where a vote on a bill for a January 6th commission to investigate what happened on the 6th in terms of the insurrection. We know what happened. What I'm saying is who's responsible. We're members of Congress involved or aides or staff members because we have a right to know. The final vote in the Senate was 54 to 35, and you would think, okay, the bill passed, but it didn't. It failed because the Republican minority called a silent filibuster, which Basically, it just takes one senator. They don't actually have to debate. All they have to do is file this paper saying they intend to filibuster. And then the only way you can get past it to get to a vote is you have to have 60 votes to overrule the filibuster. Now, you think, okay, why is this important? The fact is this. No bill in Congress can come to a vote until debate has officially been ended. And what the filibuster does, it essentially says debate never ends, therefore no vote takes place. And that's how they stop legislation. And this is how the GOP, the Senate GOP under Mitch McConnell, basically stonewalled every major goal that President Obama had. And we can't have any true reforms as long as this silent filibuster exists. And the GOP knows it. All right? There will never be any meaningful environmental action, no meaningful environmental laws with teeth and with funding to actually make these reforms until, or any justice, until we end this tool 
of oppression. And it is a tool of oppression. Now, we've been told by both sides, both the Republicans, but also some of the, the corporate Democrats, the blue dog Democrats, that there's nothing we can do to end this silent filibuster. And even some of the legal experts that I looked up said the same thing, that basically only the Senate can change this. Even, uh, you know, you, you can't even take it to the courts because it is a procedural issue of the Senate. Okay. But you know what? Like any Rube Goldberg device, and you know what a Rube Goldberg device, if you don't, basically the, a Rube Goldberg device is some insane contraption that is so convoluted, it, it, you can't even follow the logic, and it's devised to just take care of one simple little action. And, and really, Rube Goldberg devices in legislation are intended to confuse the public, so we never know what's really going on, and then we can't hold people accountable. So we've been told we can't change this, only the Senate can change it. And basically, the problem is the reforms can't begin until the filibuster's gone, and yet we can't get rid of it as long as a single senator ironically uses the silent filibuster in a move to save it. In a move to save, in other words, to prevent a vote against the silent filibuster. And I wrote this in my little... Uh, Description of the program, newsflash. All that is a lie. Just is, it's a lie, and you're going to find out towards the end of the show. There is a solution, and it's quite simple. The truth is, according to a couple of legal experts, we can end the silent filibuster right now, and we don't need the GOP of Trump and McConnell, and we don't need turncoats like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. That sounds pretty... Controversial, doesn't it? I like controversy. Keeps the fires going. So let's talk about it. So the filibusters, we know it. As I said before, it morphed from this infamous Jimmy Stewart, Mr. Smith goes to Washington spectacle, to really an illegitimate and unconstitutional procedural silent filibuster that technically allows even a single senator to derail legislation supported by the majority. We saw it the other day. The vote to have a January 6th commission investigate not just what happened, but who was all involved in this, this treasonous insurrection. And you would think, you know, normally if we had a vote that, that basically a simple majority, 51 votes in the Senate carries it, it would happen. And the vote was 54 to 35, but it still failed. The 35 senators won because, again, somebody pushed a silent filibuster which basically means unless the other side has the 60 votes, the vote they, they, they did essentially didn't take place. And if it sounds crazy to you, believe me, it's crazy like a fox. So when we talk about the filibuster, we're talking about really a slimy, no good cheat. It is a premeditated denial of equal representation by members of the Senate, period. And it was primarily used in past eras to reinforce Jim Crow laws and to make sure that, that no meaningful civil rights legislation for people of color ever took place. So it is a Jim Crow relic. It's also, in some ways, even more dangerous than that. This is an abomination to democratic rule, and it thrives with the GOP and, as I said, some rogue members of the Democratic Party, <clears throat> Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema. Feverishly work to defend what is essentially indefensible. So how does this 
maintain itself? Well, the, sim- the short answer is simply the ugly, naked truth about the GOP and then really the GOP of Trump and the GOP, which stands for the unbridled power of the very rich, the 1%, and the basically it also stands for white supremacy itself. The longer answer, that's in the, a thin veneer of false legitimacy that the procedural or the silent filibuster grants to a GOP, to a Republican Party, which, let's face it, despises democracy itself. They've said it too many times. They don't want too many people to vote. You know, Paul um, Weyrich, you know, the guy who created the Federalist Society, I believe, he was quoted many years ago saying he doesn't want too many people to vote. When people say that, you know, so the old adage about the snake, you knew their their nature. It's not going to change. So this isn't the GOP of Eisenhower or Abraham Lincoln. This is the GOP of Trump. It exists to maintain white supremacy and traditional fascism, which is government by corporate fiat or government by corporate corporate orders. That's what it really is. And to add another obscenity, this procedural filibuster, uh, the silent filibuster view, which Mitch McConnell, Roy Blunt, Josh Hawley, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Kirsten Sinema, and yes, Joe Manchin basically idolized, is completely and categorically unconstitutional. Always was. So this report is going to out that inconvenient truth because we can't have any environmental justice. We can't end this environmental racism by law until we end the filibuster. Otherwise, nothing gets done. So let's talk about one of the Democratic turncoats first. Joe Manchin, Senator Joe Manchin, West Virginia. Again, West Virginia is a coal state. He's been a friend of big coal. Talk about environmental racism. Um, and I call him, to use Trump's term, a fake Democrat, along with Kirsten Cinema. So Joe Manchin, just last Thursday, issued a statement that was, it was so ridiculous that you just had to scream. And it was in Newsweek. You know, the, the headline was, Joe Manchin won't nix filibuster to get Capitol Riot Commission. Quote, won't destroy our government, end quote. And it was written by Catherine Fung. So, you know, Joe Manchin went on the record saying, quote, I'm not, in terms of why he won't end the filibuster, he said, quote, I'm not ready to destroy our government. No, I think a bill will come together. You have to have faith. My question to Joe Manchin is, exactly how will ending an unconstitutional tool such as the procedural, the silent filibuster, destroy our government? You know, I don't understand why this reporter from Newsweek didn't press him further. You made this very, very dramatic statement, Senator Manchin. Where's your documentation? Explain yourself. So basically, you know, it went just exactly as expected. The bill was defeated using the silent filibuster with 35 senators defeating a majority vote of 54. And again, it did so by saying basically the debate never really ended, so the vote doesn't, doesn't really exist. That's how they do it. It's crazy, I know. So, you know, Manchin went on and made a bunch of excuses. He said, quote, there was a lot of negotiations, and the leadership of the Democrats on both the House and the Senate have agreed to the recommendations that, we make, that were made to make the adjustments. There's no reason for a Republican not to vote for this unless they don't want to hear the truth. 
And then he went on to say, quote, I don't know why anyone would not want to know what went on for the first time in the history of our country. An insurrection like this never, ever happened before. And now being afraid to find out what really happened, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Again, my response to Senator Manchin is, really? You don't know why the GOP wouldn't want the truth to come out? And we've never had an insurrection like this before. Newsflash, Senator Manchin, we did. It was called the Civil War. Again, they, they, you know, how many Confederate flags were flying on January 6th, and Joe Manchin still doesn't get it? So, you know, one, once again, Manchin and, and his colleague, Kirsten Sinema, they were saying, you know, look, we want, they did get a few Republicans to come on board with the January 6th bill, but, you know, once again, they won't, they're, they're still defending the silent filibuster. My question is, are Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, these fake Democrats, that naive or stupid or that criminally, or that cynically corrupt? Because, no sane person and no honest person would have any reason to believe that the GOP of Trump would play by the rules. That is why the GOP needs the silent filibuster so they can block the rules and steal from the majority. It's not rocket science. Not rocket science. And to add further to it, especially with Kirsten Cinema, she's incredibly well educated. She has a PhD. She was a social worker, and not only that, she's a licensed attorney, and yet she doesn't understand how the, the silent filibuster is unconstitutional? Okay, that's the ultimate dog eat my homework. I'm tired of hearing it. So let's talk about the filibuster and how it's unconstitutional. And it is very much so. So there was an article that ran in a little um, outlet called the National Law Journal, kind of a big deal. And it was written by Gregory L. Discant who practices law, Patterson, Belknap, Webb, and Tyler in New York, and is a member of the National Governing Board's Common Cause. And the title is, The Filibuster is Unconstitutional. Okay, there, there's no, you know, there's no obscurity there. We, you know, we get what he's saying. And the subtitle is, The Current Debate Ignores the Most Important Argument of All. The Framers Considered This in Drafting the U.S. Constitution. So, Descant goes on. And he basically explains that, you know, here we are debating this silent filibuster. And, you know, the, we should be able to have majority rule in the Senate. But because of the silent filibuster, if the Democrats who have a slim majority don't, aren't able to get that super majority, that 60 votes it needs to legislate, then basically they don't go anywhere. And DeScant argues that the filibuster impedes, quote, impedes majority rule and precludes effective legislation, while the minority party argues that the filibuster promotes bipartisanship and avoids hasty decision-making, end quote. Now, just, just and DeScant's right, okay? And, and here's the thing, whether it's Mitch McConnell or Josh Hawley or whether it's Joe Manchin and especially Kirsten Sinema, you know, they've used this excuse that the silent filibuster promotes bipartisanship. No, it doesn't. It basically creates a logjam. That doesn't, that's not, that's not an instance where by, true bipartisanship happens where each side gives up a little something. It's one side saying we're not giving an inch until the other side unilaterally surrenders. So when Kirsten Sinema said it promotes bipartisanship, 
That is one of the most asinine statements I have heard in a long, long time. And the other part that it avoids hasty decision-making. Man, talk about condescending. Because don't you know the average citizen that isn't one of those, you know, Senate self-appointed royals, we're just too stupid to understand it, so they don't want to be hasty about decision-making. Nonsense. So these arguments that the GOP have offered, as well as the people against filibuster, they were a serious consideration during the initial drafting of the Constitution. And you have to, and, and DeSant explains, quote, the Constitution comes down squarely on one side of the issue. The Constitution is governed by the principle of majority rule, period. That's it. And when they mean majority rule, they mean a simple majority. In the Senate, it means 51 votes, not 60, not 72, it means 51. And I wonder, can, can little Mitchie and Syncophant Joe and Kirsten hear me now? I have to be kind of catty because, again, especially someone like Kirsten Cinema, who pretended that she was a progressive, and maybe she was at an earlier time. You know, maybe she gave in to temptation. It was easier to be basically, you know, a water girl for the GOP than it was to actually fight the good fight. Or maybe she was never, never a progressive. And that just is too damning for me. It just is. Um, we can expect this from Mitch McConnell, but coming from Kirsten Cinema, who paraded around as a progressive, it is inexcusable and it's unforgivable. So here's what Discant says. The filibuster appears nowhere in the Constitution. It just doesn't. And Discant's also saying, because even though the filibuster is nowhere in the Constitution, the filibuster itself violates that principle of majority rule. But he goes on to say that, unfortunately, only members of the U.S. Senate can correct that, that the courts can't. Now, I disagree with this statement. If the filibuster is a mechanism which allows a minority to abrogate and subvert democratic rule, then it should be a case for the courts. Um, to state the filibuster is unconstitutional, yet simultaneously set it essentially off limits to anyone but the self-appointed aristocrats in the Senate, it's not only disingenuous to me, it's just vile. But, you know, this can't giving a legal argument, so I understand what he's saying. So going back to the reason, he goes back to the reason the Constitution was created. The idea was that they were going to overcome the problems of the previous Articles of Confederation where each state or colony was like a little separate country. And legislation required two, you know, the votes of two-thirds of the states. Sound familiar, people? And the result, according to the scant, was paralysis, legislative paralysis. The new Constitution was designed to eliminate that problem by going to what's considered the parliamentary norm, which is majority rule, and they mean simple majority. In the Senate, they mean 51 votes, not 60. And the idea is repeated in the structure and language of the Constitution itself. And the most familiar example relates to the vice president. And Descant quotes as saying the vice president has, quote, no vote unless the Senate is equally divided, end quote. Now, Descant explains that there's no reason for the vice president to be given a t the power of a tie-breaking vote but can't vote any other time unless a simple majority 
is what is required to pass legislation. And it makes sense. In fact, the framers provided that, quote, a majority of the Senate shall constitute a quorum to do business, end quote. That means only 51 of the 100 senators have to be present for the Senate to even do business. And under, there was a Supreme Court precedent that Descant cites where only a majority of the quorum, in other words, 26 senators, are actually necessary to enact legislation. This is way below the 60. Now, when you contrast that, the Senate rules, which seem to be in basically challenging the Constitution itself, the Senate rules require 60 members of the Senate to, quote, be both present and favor cutting off debate, end quote. So that's so they can get a vote. And this is how a minority of one with a silent filibuster can derail any legislation favored by the majority. Again, this is nowhere in the Constitution. In fact, the Senate rules are in direct violation of constitutional demands and mandates. So basically the will of the simple majority can be blocked unless 60 senators are present and give consent, according to the silent filibuster. Now, Descantos talk about how there's six exceptions to majority rule that are actually in the Constitution, and he gives a few examples, like, for instance, to remove a president after impeachment or to expel a member of Congress, you have to have a two-thirds vote. Okay, but that's actually specifically stated in the Constitution. And there was one occasion that Descant noted where the founding fathers, the framers, debated whether or not they needed a supermajority uh, just to pass a piece of ordinary legislation, they soundly rejected that idea. Comprende, Joe, Kirsten? I would really love to get Kirsten on this show because I would love to give her peace of my mind. Just she's so, in my opinion, Kirsten Cinema is so ethically challenged. Seriously, it's beyond belief. Anyway, back to this. Uh, just can't give some examples, okay? Roger Sherman, one of the framers, one of the founding fathers from Connecticut, argued, quote, to require more than a majority to decide a question was always embarrassing, and he cited the Articles of Confederation, okay? And he continued to, quote, express his discontent as a power given to Congress by a bare majority to pass Navigation Act, you know, again, supermajority proposal was rejected. Here's what Descan also went on to say, quote, the Constitution contains no exception to the principle of majority rule, in other words, simple majority, for any category of legislation. This isn't. But Mitch McConnell's rules are in clear violation of the Constitution. Now, McConnell and his buddies will claim you know what, there's a part of the Constitution that says each chamber, each house of Congress has the right to set their own rules. And that's true. But then he went and ran with it. The right to set your own rules, according to the Constitution, does not grant them so much latitude that they can subvert equal representation under the Constitution as mandated by the Constitution. So Mr. McConnell is dead wrong. Okay. The Constitution was ratified in the principle of simple majority rule. 
and the stamp goes on. He cites the Federalist. Number 54, James Madison said, quote, under the proposed Constitution, the federal acts will take effect merely on the majority of votes in the federal legislature. Again, simple majority. In the Federalist number 58, Madison recognized that, quote, some advantages might result from a supermajority requirement. It would provide an obstacle generally to hasty and partial measures. Um, he recognized that, but Madison didn't agree. Okay, so he recognized that, yes, that argument that Kirsten Cinema likes to make and Mitch McConnell likes to make that it keeps, you know, hasty decisions from being made. He said, yeah, Madison said, yeah, I recognize that argument, but I, I, I disagree with it. You know, Madison went on to basically demand that the requirement of a supermajority would mean that, quote, the fundamental principle of free government would be reversed. It would be no longer the majority that would rule. The power would be transferred to the minority, end quote. And then in the Federalist number 22, Alexander Hamilton said and then rejected the advantages of a supermajority requirement. So Hamilton is, all, in Federalist number two, Hamilton is also saying, yeah, I hear those arguments that Mitch McConnell are still making to the present day and Kirsten Cinema that, you know, this keeps hasty decisions from being made. But Hamilton rejected it along with Madison. And Hamilton went on to say, quote, when the concurrence of a large number is required, we are apt to rest satisfied that all is safe because nothing improper would be likely to be done. But we forget how much good may be prevented and how much ill may be produced by a paralyzed government. Okay, so, and Hamilton, end quote, and Hamilton goes on to say, in its real operation, okay, this supermajority requirement would be used by the majority to, quote, embarrass the administration and to destroy the energy of government. And also it would substitute the will of the minority for, quote, the regular deliberations and decisions of a respectable majority, end quote. So we've got these giants, Hamilton, Madison, and so on, in the Federalist paper saying, no, for simple legislation, there should be no supermajority requirement, which is what the silent filibuster does. It should be a simple majority. So, you know, Descant goes on to say, if the filibuster is unconstitutional, why can't the courts protect us? And Descant was involved in this. He submitted a brief to the SCOTUS, to the Supreme Court, supporting a lawsuit challenging the silent filibuster's constitutionality in conjunction with the plaintiff's uh, common cause, which is the Democracy Reform Group, and this was in 2014. Uh, but because of the status of the filibuster, common cause could sue only the sergeant, the Senate sergeant at arms and its other officers, but not any of the senators. And why? Because senators are immune from civil lawsuit under the Constitution's Privileges and Immunities Clause. And so the Supreme Court had ruled before that the proper way to challenge a congressional rule was to sue these congressional officers, so that's what Common Cause did. Then the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit threw the lawsuit out, and it really is a catch-22 because the court said, the D.C. Circuit Court said, well, on the one hand, the case should be dismissed because Common Cause didn't actually sue the senators responsible for the rule, they sued these other officers. But on the other hand, the court said common cause couldn't sue the senators 
because they are immune from civil lawsuits. And then, then it got kicked back up to the SCOTUS, the Supreme Court, and they just refused to review this gotcha, if you will, this catch-22 that was ironically created by the judiciary itself. So the scan finalized that they basically the only people that can fix this are the senators themselves. But you're going to find out a little later in this program that that's not true. So we have more stuff here, okay? The Washington Post, uh, this is past February, wrote um, a, um, a professor named Jack Ratkov wrote an article that was published in the Washington Post. Jack Ratkov is the William Robertson Cove Professor of History and American Studies and a Professor of Political Science Emeritus at Stanford. And he has a book that he published that received the 1997 Pulitzer Prize in History titled Original Meaning, Politics and Ideas in the Making of the Constitution. This guy knows some stuff. And the headline is, the filibuster may not even be constitutional the way it's used now. And, and so the tactic has basically morphed from a rule of deliberation to a rule of decision making. So he starts this article by saying, is the filibuster constitutional? Keep in mind. It's this tool, the silent filibuster, that is basically keeping any progressive legislation from coming forth or ever being considered, and that includes environmental justice. That's why we're talking about this, just to remind you again. So he talks about the filibuster again. And, you know, the legitimacy when we talk about the right of each uh, House of Congress to decide how their rules go, that comes from Article 1, Section 5, Clause 2 of the Constitution. And it basically says that, quote, each House, that means the Congress, each House may determine the rules and, of its proceedings, end quote. And again, I maintain, I'll agree, the right of each House of Congress to determine its proceedings, they have that, but it should not include using a mechanism that essentially nullifies equal representation. That is a constitutional violation. So, but you have Mitch McConnell hiding behind this, this little cheat of a rule. And the other thing, too, is I think that each House of Congress should be forced to follow the same laws as the rest of us, but that's another discussion. So, Basically, it gets thrown back and saying, okay, the Senate's the one that decides this. And then Ray Cove, you know, he, he gets a little sarcastic and he says, quote, why not adopt an American version of the famous Polish liberum veto, which allowed a single aristocratic member to terminate its legislative deliberations, end quote. And, you know, he's being sarcastic, but it's, it's a point, okay? Um, and he talks about the ways that the Constitution does require a supermajority in certain decisions. And those in basically are the following. You, the, the Constitution empowers each House of Congress to, again, punish its members, I'm reading directly from this, for disorderly behavior and with the concurrence of two-thirds expel a member. That's one of the conditions. The others involve um, that require a two-thirds vote would be conviction of executive officials, upon impeachment, veto overrides, treaty ratification, and a constitutional amendment. That's all legitimate. But the, two, the, the supermajority of 60 votes should never apply 
extraordinary legislation that's outside of those five things. There is, you know, no legitimacy behind it. And, you know, once again, we're looking at this and we have to change this. Um, the filibuster was previously used as a tool of Jim Crow, as I said before, to prevent any meaningful civil rights legislation. Okay? And now the more common, def and, you know, the more common defense is that it's going to promote bipartisanship in a hyper-partisan age. And again, but the people making that argument haven't actually provided any documentation that verifies it, proves that, that, that claim. None. And if you observe the times when the silent filibuster has been used in excess, especially since Mitch McConnell's been in charge, it's only resulted in more polarization, not less. So, and then the other argument is to keep from hasty legislation. And McConnell, according to Raykov, McConnell likes to um, quote from Federalist 62, you know, James Madison's ideal of deliberation uh, that gives the Senate the role of, quote, providing a complicated check against improper acts of legislation, end quote. Again, you know, McConnell loves to talk about Federalist number 62, but in late in other writings, Madison was clear what Madison actually said was while he acknowledges, while Madison acknowledged that yes, the filibuster provides a check against hasty legislation, if you will, Madison went on to say that he didn't agree with that though. See, McConnell's only talking about the stuff he likes and leaving it out, leaving out the actual truth, which Surprise, surprise. So, you know, once again, this article goes into it in detail. You can read it yourself. Um, and then there's an article from the New Republic by Adam Winkler. And, you know, Winkler points out, you know, when Rand Paul did a 13-hour filibuster, he stayed up 13 hours, he was protesting the Obama administration's drone policy. You know, Bernie Sanders did a talking filibuster where other people helped him. Uh, I'm not against that. I'm talking about the silent filibuster. This is the one Mitch McConnell likes and Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. And that doesn't mean standing up and talking ad nauseum. All they have to do, of course, is provide a simple notice that you intend to filibuster. That's it. You don't have to do anything else. Just provide a little piece of paper saying, you intend to filibuster. You don't even have to open your mouth. And then that puts the ball on the other side of the court where the other side has to round up 60 votes for cloture. In other words, a vote to close the threat by ending debate. A debate that, by the way, didn't take place in the first place. But, you know, once again, this is what we're dealing with, and it's, it's insanity. Um, and but this is a great way, you know, the silent filibuster is a great a great strategy to nullify any real reform. Okay, of course corporate loves the silent filibuster. They're getting very nervous because as the demographic of the United States changes and becomes younger and browner, they tend to be more progressive. 
And that means that this freewheeling that the rich get to do is going to come to a screeching halt unless they find a procedural way to stop any meaningful legislation. And that is why the silent filibuster must end. Okay. So, and just for the record, you can read it yourself, but Adam Winkler is a professor of law at UCLA. Okay. All right. So we're going to move on now. And I'm going to, you know, basically this next article is from The Atlantic in 2011 by David Rapath. It's titled, Why the Silent Filibuster is Unconstitutional. And Rapath explains how the first 13 decades of its existence, in other words, the first 130 years of the U.S. Senate, the, fil the Senate allowed unlimited debate. Okay. And what that meant was even one single senator or a few could basically prevent a piece of legislation from passing, in other words, by keeping it coming to a vote, by just talking nonstop. But it wasn't used very often. This is the talking filibuster once again. This is the Mr. Smith goes to Washington thing. Um, and it doesn't happen, didn't happen very often because you really have to have a lot of stamina. If you do a talking filibuster, that means... There are no bathroom breaks. People could probably bring you food and drink, but you talk until you drop. That's it. It's like a marathon. But then here's what happened. In 1917, you know, the same year that gave us uh, a racist immigration act, that gave us another sedition act, the Senate adopted what they call the cloture rule, C-L-O-T-U-R-E. And this is basically saying that debate could be ended by a two-thirds vote. You think, okay, so they get two-thirds of the Senate together, you know, in other words, 60, you know, two-thirds, I'm sorry, not six, two-thirds vote, that they can end the filibuster. What's the problem there? Well, this, that, in 1917, this was the beginning of the silent filibuster. Keep in mind, no bill can come to a vote in any legislative body until debate has been officially ended. So if you say that debate never ended, then it never comes to a vote and it never becomes law. So, you know, it was a two-thirds and the two-thirds was later changed to three-fifths. And then in more recent years, in the 20th century, well, late 20th century, early 21st, cloture really was bastardized. I'm just going to say it. Now all it takes is the minority to prevent a bill from even reaching the floor. Not just debate, not a vote. Not, the bill won't even get to the floor for debate even. To prevent a bill from getting to, let me start again. Now with the, the silent filibuster, all you need to do to keep a bill from even reaching the floor is just to threaten to filibuster. Debate doesn't even begin. And this is the silent filibuster, and it's an oxymoron, okay? It is. And then now you have to get a supermajority of 60 votes to end it, okay? And that essentially ended majority rule in the Senate. Now, keep in mind, regardless of what Mitch McConnell said about this one Federalist paper, which he's wrong about, actually, we've already talked about that, 
the Constitution says it's simple majorities. That means in the Senate, 51 votes, not super majorities, is the rule. And that is actually cited in Article 1, Section 5 of the Constitution. says, quote, a majority of each house shall constitute a quorum to do business. Again, the Constitutional Convention, the Founding Fathers considered the idea of a supermajority but rejected the idea. Federalist Paper Number 58 says that, quote, in all cases where justice or the general good might require new laws to be passed or active measures to be pursued, the fundamental principle of free government would be reversed if quorums or more than a majority were required. It would be no longer the majority that would rule, the power would be transferred to the minority. We talked about this. So then we get to the 111th Congress in 2009, okay? That's the Obama administration. If a bill didn't, didn't meet the approval of the minority bloc in the Senate, it was threatened with filibuster. And this threat became so powerful that it was basically the equivalent of a legislative veto now, this legislative veto could be overridden if you can find three-fifths to support, in other words, 60 votes. Most bills that came to the Senate from the House died because of this unconstitutional legislative veto, this silent filibuster. So they didn't even motion, there was no motion to proceed. And this is how the Senate kills all good things. Okay. And the fact that this really became rabid during the Obama administration from a Southern senator leading the charge, namely Mitch McConnell, don't tell me racism didn't play into it. Of course it did. But it was also to prevent any sort of real reform. And keep in mind, David Rapass is a retired professor of political science with a specialty in American government. Now we have another article. I'm just going to lance on it a little bit before we get to our big news, which is going to kick you in the butt. This is an article that ran in the journal for my own union, AFT, American Federation of Teachers, and it's called The Crisis of American Democracy, and it's written by Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Zablatt. Stephen Levitsky is, is the David Rockefeller Professor of Latin American Studies, and professor of government at a little dinky place called Harvard. Okay. He's authored multiple books. He is an expert. David Zablatt is the Eaton Professor of Science and Government at, again, that little dinky place called Harvard. Okay. So, again, they're talking about how we are in crisis. Uh, and we are. All right. According to Global democracy indexes like Freedom House, uh, varieties of democracy and the Economist Intelligence Unit, there's a clear erosion of American democracy since 2016, namely Trump. <clears throat> Freedom House ranked the United States lower, less, as less democratic than Chile, the Czech Republic, Slovenia, Taiwan, and Uruguay. That's shameful and that we're in the same category as new democracies like Croatia, Greece, Mongolia, and Panama. And he's asking the question, how did we get here? And he points out the fact that, look, these problems started before 2016. And so as much fun as it is to blame everything on Trump, that's just not accurate. All right. But he also talks about the fact that in order for a constitution to be maintained and a democracy to be maintained, 
there are these two unwritten democratic norms that are essential to maintaining democracy. One is called mutual toleration. The other is institutional forbearance. Mutual toleration is exactly what it sounds like, the idea that you accept the legitimacy of your rival's opinions. Okay, you may disagree with them, you may dislike them, but you also recognize that they are loyal citizens who also believe in democracy. That would be lovely in truth, but let's face facts. The GOP of Trump despises democracy for all. They only want rights for white Christian males. That one's already been destroyed. And the second is institutional forbearance. And that is really the, the voluntary, um, it's voluntarily not using power that you could use, all right? It's deli- they, call, they call it as deliberate self-restraint, all right? That even though you're constitutionally able to do things, you may not do it because you want to try and work things through. Now, this institutional forbearance, that is what builds bipartisanship, if possible. Not, not the silent filibuster. One has nothing to do with the other. And, you know, this is basically a history lesson, but they talk about how this goes back to the 90s, uh, the early attacks that began with Newt Gingrich, where he encouraged other Republicans to use words like betray, anti-flag, and traitor to describe Democrats. Now, they use, now they're calling Antifa, you know, basically leftist Nazis and everything else. And, and basically, Gingrich encouraged this incitement and encouraged the active and open slander of his opponents. That's really what it is. And, you know, once again, this built up a lot of steam. And then you had other Republican leaders besides Gingrich, such as Sarah Palin, according to this guy, Rudy Giuliani, Mike Huckabee, and Donald Trump, and they basically said that they told the followers that Obama didn't love America, and that the Obama, Obama and the Democrats weren't real Americans. Again, they went on, and I'm just going to get a little bolder than this, these guys and say they slandered their fellow Americans. They slandered them. They defamed them. They libeled them with the clear intent of making them the enemy of them. There's, and this is, frankly, too, in my opinion, too close to what the early buildup by Hitler when he demonized people that would happen to get in his way. And this polarization, it, it's built on a bunch of lies, let's be honest. So we're going to skip ahead and we're going to go to uh, the big part here, okay? So, and it looks like we have somebody is calling in, but I am not going to answer. <laughs> These people do not understand. We're going to go ahead now because what we have here now is minority rule due to the silent filibuster. And this is really a definite threat to our democracy. Keep in mind, according to these two researchers, the last two Republican presidents, namely George W. Bush and Donald Trump, came to office even though they lost the popular vote. And yes, I know all about the Electoral College, though I consider it illegitimate. The Democrats won the overall vote in 2016 and 2018 Senate elections, and yet Republicans still control the Senate. In 2017, 
Neil Gorsuch, according to these guys, became the first Supreme Court justice in history that was appointed by a president who lost the popular vote and then confirmed by senators who represented less than half the country. Brett Kavanaugh came to the court the same way. So you've got a conservative court, conservative Supreme Court majority that is basically has minor, minor, minority origins, in other words, okay? Um, and then they go on to cite uh, these two writers that in 2020, the 52 senators that voted to acquit Trump during the impeachment came from states that represented 18 million fewer Americans than the 48 senators who voted to convict. This is unequal, no doubt about it. And we had dealings with minority rule in America before. And again, it's not the way to run things. So let's move on ahead. Now, this is the real kicker. You know how we were told by Gregory DeScant and several others that the only, the only group that can stop the silent filibuster is the U.S. Senate? Except that's not true. There was an op-ed, an editorial that ran in the Los Angeles Times, March 22, 2021. And it was written by Erwin Shermerinsky and Burt Newborn. And the title was, The Filibuster is Unconstitutional. Here's how Vice President Kamala Harris can take it on. Now, let me explain. Shermerinsky and Newborn propose a very unique solution to this, to ending the silent filibuster, which, and the solution is fully constitutional, but it's been suspiciously absent from the debate. Now, let me tell you a little something about the two authors. They're not little nothing. Erwin Shermerinsky is the dean of the UC Berkeley School of Law, and Burton Newborn is the Norman Dorson Professor of Civil Liberties at New York University School of Law. They are big deals. I'm just going to read from this because it's just too juicy. Quote, there is a clear next step in changing the Senate filibuster. Vice President Kamala Harris, as President Officer of the Senate, can and should declare the current Senate filibuster rule unconstitutional. This would open the door for discussions on a new rule that would respect the minority without giving it an unconstitutional veto, end quote. Think about that for a second. The vice president can declare that the silent filibuster is unconstitutional. They can have discussions which will still respect minority rights, i.e. the talking filibuster, but the minority would no longer have an unconstitutional legislative veto. The silent filibuster would be gone. Where did this come from? You expect it, did it come from Bernie Sanders? Did it come from Noam Chomsky? No, it came from a source you would never expect. Richard Nixon. Now, I admit, when I was in high school, uh, it was in the 70s, Nixon was being impeached before he left office. And I remember in your yearbook, you were, what was your greatest ambition in life? And mine was to head to Nixon enemies list. But it turns out Richard Nixon did one good thing in his whole lousy life, and it was this. In 1957, when he was vice president, Richard Nixon, as vice president, was also the presiding officer of the Senate, and he issued two advisory positions that are actually on record at the Wilson Center. And these opinions held that, quote, a crucial provision of the Senate's filibuster rule 
requiring two-thirds vote to amend it was unconstitutional. And this determination on his part, this was reaffirmed by other vice presidents after him, namely Hubert Humphrey and Nelson Rockefeller. And it was this ruling by Richard Nixon that allowed a Democratic-controlled Senate in 2013 and a Republican-controlled Senate in 2017 to eliminate silent filibusters for all executive and judicial nominees. That's why it's only a simple majority. Okay? But they kept it for legislation. Vice President Kamala Harris, according to this, has the same power to rule the current version of the silent, of the silent filibuster, which basically demands a 60-vote supermajority rule to enact legislation. She can declare it unconstitutional, and here's the reason why. Quote, because it denies states equal suffrage in the Senate in violation of Article 5 of the Constitution. Okay? And that's from the archives of the federal government, the federal register. Think about what that means. The silent filibuster basically denies equal suffrage in the Senate in violation of Article 5. Now, we know the Senate isn't really about equal representation to start with um, because you have low population states that have more privilege because they get the same two senators as high population states. And, you know, they use an example. Wyoming has approximately 580,000 people. They get the same two senators, the same, same amount of representatives, same two senators as California with 40 million people. And what that becomes mathematically is that a, pers a citizen in Wyoming, a person in Wyoming has 65 times more voting power in the Senate, essentially, than a person living in California. And so this is an unequal thing, but that would require changing the two senators. That would require a constitutional amendment. But the current 60-vote filibuster rule makes the imbalance worse. It has no constitutional foundation. And under the 60-vote rule, 41 senators representing approximately a third of the population, according to the Brennan Center, can outweigh 50 senators representing two-thirds. And they go on to say, quote, this situation surely violates the principle of equal representation in voting. For example, the one-person, one-vote rule that the SCOTUS long ago applied to state legislative and congressional districts. Okay, so the fact is the Senate does not have the authority to create more unfairness than already exists. Okay? In fact, Article I of the Constitution doesn't permit a 60-vote supermajority rule. Again, it says supermajority votes in the Senate only, quote, in narrowly defined cases like ratifying treaties, overturning presidential vetoes, and convicting impeached, impeached officials, end quote. Okay? The Senate has to operate by majority rule. That's it. But the 60-vote supermajority rule that is the silent filibuster, that is this essentially legis unconstitutional legislative veto, destroys that mathematical equality of each senator's vote. Okay? And so these two authors go on. I'm going to read directly from a quote. We believe that the best way is for Harris to rule the current version of the Senate filibuster operates as an unconstitutional 60-vote supermajority requirement for the enactment of general legislation in violation of Article 5, the in violation of Article 5, the 17th Amendment, and the constitutional presumption of majority rule. 
And they're right. Okay? They just are. It's just that simple. So the fact is, Senator, I'm sorry, Vice President Kamala Harris has the power right now to declare the silent filibuster unconstitutional and end it. And it turns out, since 1957, every vice president as presiding officer of the Senate has had that power, and yet they chose not to use it, and you have to ask yourself why. Now, my own thoughts on this rule. Once again, we know this, that the Senate, each house has the right to determine their own rules. But does the power to determine their own rules grant the House and grant the Senate the right to effectively nullify our right to equal representation, our right to one person, one vote? And then, you know, another question that's plaguing me. Do elected reps in a republic have the right to pass any type of law they please? even if said law violates the Bill of Rights? You would think the answer is simple, but it's not. Right now, at the local, state, and federal level, elected reps, congressmen, representatives, senators, mayors, governors, city councilmen, people, etc., they've been inflicting alleged laws that to various degrees trample the Bill of Rights. Where is the accountability? Now, I made this show longer because I didn't know if it would take more than an hour to discuss this. The reason we are discussing why the silent filibuster must end on a show that is all about environmental justice is because we can't get any justice, environmental or otherwise, with, while the silent filibuster remains in place, while we have this supermajority requirement for basic legislation. We can't get any sort of effective environmental laws that can protect our air, our water, the food we eat, protect future generations. We can't get any of that done as long as the silent filibuster remains. Now, this show, I allocated 90 minutes. I'm not going to take the full 90 minutes. But I, I would encourage everyone to not only pressure the Democratic Party to demand that Vice President Harris do her duty and declare the silent filibuster as unconstitutional, and then also demand accountability from fake Democrats like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema that have sidled up so conveniently to the far right, the GOP of Trump. It is inexcusable. It just is. In fact, Kirsten Sinema is so loved by the Republicans. This is really scary. Joan McCarter on Daily Cause staff just wrote a piece saying McConnell Dark Money Group thanks Cinema, Kirsten Cinema, for her filibuster help, which is a big problem. You know, and she's been all over the news, and, and, and you know, she uses this lilt in her voice. You know, we're trying to encourage bipartisanship, you know, very condescending, you know, the way you would talk to a three-year-old. And it's pure nonsense. Not to mention that the Kirsten Cinema is a licensed attorney herself. She knows better. But these dark money groups are backing these anti-democracy senators, these anti-democracy uh, Congress people, and we can't allow this anymore. So once again, 
Call these people on the rug. They are not aristocrats. They would have you believe that, but they're not. And then vote them out of office, primary them, do what you have to do. But the most important thing right now is to demand. Demand the Democrats that Vice President Kamala Harris do her duty as required by the Constitution and as the presiding officer of the Senate declares the silent filibuster as the unconstitutional device that it is. You know, while the, the optic of her elevation is very nice, we don't need any more empty symbolism. We need positive action. We need to end these cheats. And we need it now. That's it. And if the vice president has a problem with that, then we have to question her sympathies. This is a no-brainer. All these legal experts have declared it unconstitutional. Other vice presidents have done the same. Hubert Humphrey, Democrat, Nelson Rockefeller, and ironically Richard Nixon, who found it out. Again, demand of the Democrats. And I mean, tell them, you'll take your vote elsewhere otherwise. Demand that the vice president do her constitutional duty as presiding officer of the Senate and declare the silent filibuster to be the unconstitutional cheat that it is. Then we can actually get President Biden, part of President Biden's agenda done, and we can actually get progressive goals done. And then we put pressure on the blue dogs. Because, again, we won't get any sort of environmental laws that benefit our children and our grandchildren. We won't get any sort of progress, meaningful progress, on saving this planet with laws that stop these polluters until we end the silent filibuster. Because the silent filibuster is a denial of equal representation, and it makes a mockery of the very idea of democratic rule itself. So as President Obama said, it's more than just a Jim Crow relic. It's far worse than that still. So that's our show tonight. We will be talking more about this. And I hope you learned something. With that, I say, okay, my phone is acting up here. With that, I say, Good night and God bless.